I'm recording via Zoom, but I'm, as you know, from Wednesday, I'm only posting the audio. So that's another, like, don't feel like you're being, um, don't feel like you're being kind of surveilled and recorded, like your video feed is not being recorded. Okay, so, uh, so that's, that's what's happening. Hi, Sadie, how are you? Good. Cool, just saying hi, thanks. Um, okay, let's get started. I'm recording. Uh, so I got a bunch of different announcements to, to set out for you guys, talk a little bit through where we're heading in the class, because this is a pretty firm break, like between today and next week and going forward. Um, we'll talk about the end of the Zikala Shah piece for a little bit. I have some quotes that I want to bring up uh, and talk through some of the posts that, that folks um, um, uh, provided. But the, the place to start is that um, I sent an email yesterday to everybody asking you to fill out a mid-semester evaluation. Um, people get that email? Yeah. So if you haven't filled that out yet, as I said in the message, I'm going to unrelentingly spam the class with that link until I get enough responses. So if you haven't responded yet, please do uh, for the sake of your email inbox. I really appreciate those of you who have already um, uh, responded. I really appreciate the feedback. For the most part, it's been positive. I've had some confusion around how the discussion posts work and particularly, particularly around the grades. So I want to kind of mention that. I mentioned it weeks and weeks and weeks ago, but I want to mention it again. When you look at Blackboard and you like see the amount of points you have out of the available points on the forum, you're going to look at that and all of you are going to think you're failing. Okay. It's not, that's not how it works, okay? Blackboard makes me grade everything out of four. So even though your replies are graded out of two, it looks like they're graded out of four. So basically, if you do perfect on a reply, it looks like you got a 50%. That has kind of evoked uh, consternation and folks understandably stress. Had some emails from people not understanding that. Makes perfect sense. Um, what you want to do is just tally up your points and then figure out how many available points there's been so far in the class. And that is not the same as the available points that Blackboard says there is. So like, you know, if you probably, you're going to look on Blackboard and it looks like you have like a D. It's not the case. You probably have like a B minus right now or a B plus. Like, so, so just to kind of allay that fear for those of you who are in this room today, or who are listening in. Any questions on that? Okay. Um, other announcements? Yeah, so do that mid-semester evaluation, please, um, lest I continue to uh, spam your inboxes. And then next week, so I wanna talk a little bit about where we're going in the class, right? So I've mentioned this a couple of times, but I like, especially in these weird, this very weird semester where we're in class and out of class and online and all this stuff, I like to kind of orient us, tell us where we've been and where we're going, right? So we began the class with a discussion of concepts that would kind of we would use as tools in our toolbox to talk through some of the literature that we're gonna read. That was the king. And then we went into three weeks. This is the end of the third week of some kind of historical literature. We started with kind of traditional stories, origin, uh, confederation, folk tales. And we talked about early autobiography and now we're talking about boarding school narratives, right? So two kind of life stories, one Apis, the second Zikala Shah. That was like a three week period too. The, starting next week, 
we are like very, very definitively leaving historical material and we're going really, really strongly into contemporary literature. Okay, and when I say literature, I really mean literature um, in the way that maybe many of you think of it, right? So when you're reading Apis or Zikalasha, you might not be thinking of it as particularly literary, right? These are kind of historical works. They're works of nonfiction. For the rest of the semester, starting next week, we are reading three weeks of poetry, and then we are reading a novel over the course of, I think, about three weeks. Okay, so we're leaving definitively behind historical material, nonfictional texts, we're moving entirely into contemporary poetry and contemporary fiction. I hope that might be a wonderful thing for many of you, right? In many respects, a wonderful thing for me too, even though I like teaching that earlier stuff, I think there's a lot to say about like literature as such. Okay, so starting next week, we're reading poetry. I'm going to bring up, I'm going to pull up um, on the share screen here, the syllabus. If people are listening in, you can just kind of find the syllabus um, wherever you are. People see that? Yeah, okay, I'm seeing some head nods. I like that. So um, yeah, where we've been, like boarding school narratives, early autobiography, where we're going is into contemporary poetry. So it's all out of that anthology, which was a required text, okay? All out of that required text of poetry and, th and the poetry anthology. Um, as always, if you like don't have access to that, I don't know why that would be here, but if it is the case, like please feel free to email me. Like I'm not gonna shame you into like not doing the work for the class because you feel bad that you didn't pick up the text. So please email me, we'll try and figure something out for you. So um, a lot less reading going forward for the next three weeks, right? You're just going to be reading like six or seven poems every day. That's deceptive, right? Because like you think, oh, I read a poem once and I kind of understand it. And to a certain extent you do, but what we're going to be talking about over the course of these three weeks is really how to read poetry. There's no kind of um, presumption on my part that you know how to read and interpret and analyze poetry. So that's where we're going and what it's going to require of all of you is a kind of different orientation to the discussion posts, right? Because so far in the class, the discussion posts around non, mostly non-fictional texts, you've been able to kind of like talk about these things in a way that, uh, you can talk about them in a way that, that seems kind of easy, right? It's easy, it's relatively easy to interpret like a piece of text that communicates you to you more or less transparently. What's gonna change over the course of the rest of the semester is that like interpreting and analyzing poetry is different, right? And so we're gonna to have to get used to that on the discussion forum. The one thing that I would say to you before we kind of dive headlong into that next week is I would encourage you all to focus on the language, right? Focus on the language of the poetry, focus on the form of the poetry. Don't just tell me what the poem is saying. Okay, where we're gonna to get to by the end of this three week period is we're gonna have, try to have a kind of thoroughgoing sense of how to interpret poetry. And really the way that we interpret poetry and the people who are English majors here or AEN uh, English majors here know this, right? The way that we interpret poetry is we look at the content, we look at what's being said, but we also look at the form and at the language and we try to think about how those two things are related to one another. Right, so on the discussion forum, a cool thing to do either in the responses or in the post is to think more concertedly, not just about what the poem is saying, but also what the poem is doing. 
I like my hand motions here on the webcam. Um, what the poem is saying and what the poem is doing, okay? Right, and how those two things collide and how they interact. So that's where we're gonna start next week. At the end of that three week period, right, on November 2nd, a day before, uh, <laughs> a day before the uh, US presidential election, so hopefully like we haven't all just been turned to like a puddle of goo uh, by then. But if we're still around and if there is still, uh, if all of the buildings have not burned by uh, November 2nd, we have a assignment to. Okay, and I wanna talk about that a little bit right now. Um, and I'll go into it a little bit further, maybe a week out from when it's due, but I, I, I do wanna kind of like put it on your radar. Okay, so um, November 2nd, we haven't had like a big assignment due. You've had the discussion post the whole time, but we haven't had a big assignment due. So I'm gonna stop this share and, and um, share the, the prompt for that assignment with you. Just bear with me one second. Um, this prompt for people who are listening in, this prompt is available on Blackboard under um, course documents or, or, or wherever it is. No, that's the wrong thing. I'm look, you're looking at the syllabus again or are you looking at the prompt? You can see that, right? The poem analysis? Okay. So this is gonna be a four-page four paper, but an informal one. I don't need you to write a formal paper with an introduction and a conclusion. What I want you to do is respond over the course of four pages, double-spaced, to the questions that I'm asking in the bulleted list, right? And the reason why I'm kind of making a bulleted list here is that I'm breaking down the constituent parts of how to read a piece of poetry. And I'm asking you to do each one step by step, right? Step by step until you come to the end and you have a kind of interpretation or a conclusion to make about what the poem is doing and what the poem is saying. Okay, so the intention over the next three weeks after today, of course, is to model this interpretive process so that by November 2nd or whatever, November 1st, when you're writing this paper, you feel confident in being able to interpret a poem. So you're going to pick one poem from all of the ones that have been assigned over the course of three weeks. It might be one that you talk a little bit about on your discussion post that you want to say more about in a paper. That's wonderful, right? You're going to pick one poem and you're going to kind of respond in an informal way to the questions that are presented to you in this bulleted list, right? And that's kind of our first more or less formal written assignment for the semester. But bear in mind that I'm not looking for like the introduction and the conclusion and the transitions. Like, that's nice and, and like that's kind of the way that we write all the time so that's fine but like that's not what i'm looking for here any questions on this prompt as you kind of look it over or think it through for many of you guys um does it have to be a certain length or as long as we answer the questions then we're fine well i'd like it to be around four pages um i'm not like a massive stickler about these things. Um, if you like are running onto the fourth page, but you're like halfway there and you're not down to the like the very, very bottom, it's fine, right? But the intention is that I think given all of the questions that I'm asking you, that it's gonna take you about four pages to do this type of assignment well. Um, 
but I'm not a stickler about these things. I, I honestly don't really like, if you give me two pages, that's going to be a problem. But, but like, I'm really care about what you write at, like way more than how long it is. I just like got to give it some type of guideline. Um, at the top of the paper, don't, don't like, don't like the worst thing you could do is like try to, uh, like goose the numbers or something like put your name and then double space and then the date and then double space and then the class and then double space and then uh like your dog's name and then double space and like your blood type and then your c number and like i don't need i don't need all of that i get what you're doing so like try to get you know as close to four as possible was that sadie asking that question yes that was <laughs> is, that, is, that, is that helpful Sadie? yes that was thank you so much okay yeah any other questions about that So if um, the material in the class so far for you has been like, you know, you know, interesting and notable and useful, but, but you're kind of asking yourself like, ah, this is an English class. Where's the fucking poetry, man? Or like, where's the fiction? Where's the novel? Where's the, where's that kind of stuff? Well, you're in luck for the rest of the semester. That's what we're going to be doing. Right. And that's going to ask us to kind of use different parts of our interpretive brain. Um, and it's not as obvious, like how to interpret poetry. So we're kind of going to dip our feet in. I'm going to model some things for you. Um, that kind of stuff. Okay, cool. Good on that. I'm, I'm sorry for spending so much time kind of like going over the um, nitty gritty and the details of the next couple of weeks, but I think that it's important. And after all, like there was only 10 pages of reading. So how much really is there to say about what we were up for today? So where do we want to start with Zikala Shah with the end, right? So this tripartite structure that we have in this text works really well for reading over the course of a week, right? We have the beginning on Monday where Zikala Shah is a young kind of naive native woman who's living in this kind of what we call it on Monday, this almost utopian or paradisical situation, but that a situation that seems utopian and paradisical, but is actually bracketed by the presence of white settlers at the beginning and at the end of what we talked about on Monday. And then of course, um, on Wednesday, we talked through the federal Indian boarding school system, Zikala Shah's experiences in it, how the intention of that system is to assimilate native people, um, to kill the Indian and to save the man, to basically turn native people into kind of um, settlers, right? In name, if not biologically, or if not in other ways. And then Today, like, what is the main thrust of what we read for today? If Monday is about Zikala Shah's childhood, if Wednesday is about her education, what would you say is like the point of this reading today, right? She becomes a teacher among the native students, but what's, what's Zikala Shah trying to get across to us? What's the big idea that she's coming to? Just unmute yourself and, and blurt something out if that's comfortable if you're comfortable with that you can also raise your hand i'm also i have to learn on zoom to like shut up for a while too to let people talk but go ahead she was learning or like not learning but she was reflecting on all of her decisions and how it affected her throughout her life and then now as an adult great so like one big part of what we have and what we read for today is literally like one of the sections is called retrospection Right. So Zikala Shah is kind of taking account of all of these things that have happened to her. And she's essentially like making a judgment on her experiences and what's occurred. 
right? So yeah, there is a certain way in which this is a really nice kind of like conclusion to what we've read prior because it provides us with like Zik Kalashah's contemporary um, perspective on those historical events. So that's one big thing that's happening is like, okay, what does she think of what's happened to her? And we'll get into that. It's kind of depressing to be honest, like what she thinks about what's happened to her. There's not really too much good to say, unfortunately. What else happens in this portion of the text? Kind of what relationships are explored, that kind of thing. I would say she realizes, <clears throat> excuse me, she has no home to go back to because she doesn't feel complete, um, like she belongs to either or. Yeah, yeah, and um, this is a really great point. It's one that we brought up with Apis quite a bit and Caroline in your post kind of made that connection and Marissa also made this connection in, in your post too, right? Like the, the idea that Austin is kind of talking through is this caught between two worlds thing, right? Um, so Marissa, you wanna talk a little bit more about that? Just kind of rehearse something you said from your post? Um, if you remember. It was like, basically she, when she's back like at home, she, feels more aligned with like what she learned in like the Eastern school. And then when she's at like the Eastern school, she just wants to go home and she misses like her traditions. Right, cool, yeah. And that's really kind of demonstrated really effectively by Zakala Shah and what we read for today in these kind of two scenes that seem to kind of mirror or parallel one another, right? There's the scene that when she gets to the Eastern school, she kind of is like safely deposited in this like white box that basically she describes as something like a prison, but it's her living quarters, right? And who visits her? It's the kind of superintendent of the school, which we're meant to understand is actually a man named Richard Henry Pratt, who's like the founder of the boarding school movement in the United States. And what does he say to her? Does anybody remember? It's just a small detail, but it's kind of example. It's, it's a good example of what's happening. There I recall. Yeah, he just says something like, oh, so you're the young Indian woman who did so well at the oratorical contest, right? And so basically what the superintendent is doing there is as Marissa is suggesting is she's come east, but she's still kind of like perceived as the young native girl, right? Um, another moment that comes through that kind of gives us a sense of Zikala Shah still being perceived in the East as a young native girl, never being able to escape that kind of identity is something that Nicole, you talk about a lot in your post, right? This idea that like basically white benefactors come to the boarding school, um, basically to, to make them feel better about themselves and to entertain them. Right, so that's another thing that happens, the scene here, um, that gives us a sense of like when Zakali Shah is in the East, she doesn't feel white, right? But she doesn't really feel native either. And then the other scene that kind of like mirrors that scene with the superintendent is when Zakali Shah is with her mother back West. What happens in that scene? She gets out of the car and her mother does what? This is a kind of weird scene. There's some implications here that are not exactly described. Does anybody recall? She gets out of the car and her mother says what? Her mother looks what and says what? Brendan, you wanna talk about that? Cause you mentioned that in your post. Uh, she gets out of the car with like a white man who drove her and her mother was like, 
skeptical at first because she thought they were like in a relationship. Yeah. But it turns out like the guy was just driving her to her mother's house. Yeah, the implication, like when the white driver gets out of the car, is Zakala Shah's mother's like, why'd you bring this guy around? Right? The implication is that like Zakala Shah thinks that Zakala Shah has brought a white suitor or a romantic interest back home. I'm sure we've all had these experiences. You bring a girlfriend or a boyfriend back to your, to your parents' house and you get some strange looks, potentially. That's what's happening here. And Zakala Shah is like, no, 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 no. He's just the Uber driver. It's okay. He's, he's just the Uber driver. Um, and then right after that moment, right, Zakala Shah's mother embraces Zakala Shah. So what does that suggest about the mother's um, perspective towards the whites at this portion, in this portion of the text? Right, she's really angry and pissed off at the prospect of Zakala Shah like being romantically engaged with a white person. So what does it suggest about her perspective right now at this portion? of the book um it kind of shows that like even in the beginning how it, like she didn't trust like the pale faces and like she didn't want her daughter to like go to the school and it kind of shows that like her p perspective hasn't changed since like her daughter went to the east yeah that's exactly right Caroline. if anything it's hardened right because we get this sense from the way that like she hasn't modernized and updated her house or like what's happened to Zakala Shah's brother Dawe, where he lost his job, even though he was educated, he lost it to a white man, right? So we get this sense that like the mother's perspective um, towards the whites has kind of hardened and calcified into like a further hostility, okay? So um, to just go all circle all the way back to Marissa's point, we have a scene in the West and we have a scene in the East and in neither of these contexts does Zikala Shah feel perfectly stable, right? And that's really notable and interesting, especially in contrast to where we end up in the Apis book, right? Um, and Caroline, you talked about this in your post, but like at the end of the Apis book, we say that like Methodism provides Apis with a means of kind of stabilizing his identity, but we don't really have the same thing for Zikala Shah at the end, right? In fact, like at the end of what we read for today, it's actually quite depressing. Where does she end up? So she, she quits her job at the school, where does she end up going? Anybody remember again a small detail, but she says she quits her job at the school because she, because of all the reasons we've discussed, she feels like she's being treated as a spectacle. She um, uh, is like angry at her white benefactors, right? But where does she end up? Anybody remember? She doesn't go west. Right? She doesn't go back home. This is what you'd expect if she had, at the end of this narrative, a kind of stable sense of identity, is you'd expect her to say, okay, this Eastern schooling system stuff, this isn't really working for me. I'm going to go back home, right? I'm going to reintegrate back into my native community. She, in fact, doesn't do that. She goes the opposite direction. So she's at Carlisle. She's in Pennsylvania when she decides to quit her job as a teacher. And she says that she goes east. And she actually goes to the city. She goes to New York City, right, where she, where she lives for quite a, a while. It's not explicitly stated in the text. But she goes to New York City, and she says that she continues her education, right? So you would expect that, like, she would have um, 
hostility for the whites and that would have turned her against the situation that she's in at Carlisle and that would require her or compel her to go back home. In fact, she doesn't go back home, right? She goes further east. So it's a little counterintuitive, potentially a little against the grain, but what it suggests is that she does not have at the end of this text, a kind of really stable foundation for her identity. And that's clear enough by like how like disastrously depressing um, the end of the, the end of what the, the reading is, right? But okay, I wanna talk a little bit more about Zikala Shah's relationship with her mother. And then I wanna go into um, a scene that, that Kieran, you mentioned, but that, uh, about the tree, I think it's a really nice scene. But can we talk a little bit more about the relationship between Zikala Shah and her mother? Because when Zikala Shah comes home, right? Her mother is like really amped up, really angry, looking for vengeance, looking for revenge, right? Like really um, upset about the situation, right? Really angry at settlers. Zikala Shah is not. She's not that. What is she? There's a distinction here between her mother's perspective on the settlers and Zikala Shah's perspective on the settlers. Does anybody want to think through that? Her mom's just angry. What is she? She's kind of like indifferent. Like she's just kind of like, oh, well, they're here. Like not much you can do about it. Yeah, her, yeah, she's basically resigned, right, to what's going to happen. Why do you think that is? Like, why is her mother still kind of like chomping at the bit, enraged, whereas Akala Shah is kind of resigned to what's going to happen? Because she went to like a school with them and her mother like lost so much because of them. And she kind of like blames the white settlers. Um, but like Sakala Shah like went East and like lived with them for a while. So it's like a little bit different like perspective. Yeah, that perspective has changed, right? So this is where I want to get to is like Zikala Shah says in the near the end of the reading that she has given up so much in order to uh, be educated with the white man's papers, right? What she means by that is she's given up so much to become literate, to learn how to read and write in English. This moving east for her has been a kind of journey towards a certain type of knowledge, right? A settler knowledge, a Western knowledge. And instead of that knowledge providing her with like, let's say, um, freedom or uh, liberation, right? Uh, it's actually provided her with the opposite. It's actually resigned her to the idea that like native life is forever going to change and that there's nothing we can do about it. This is a really important point that comes out at the end of the text. And the reason why it's so important is that it speaks against really some of the very, like very, very foundations of the educational system in the United States, even like 21st century, like the idea that you gain knowledge in order to free yourself, right? The idea that you acquire literacy for the purposes of liberation, that you go to school, you learn to read and write, you learn to express yourself 
in order to become yourself more fully, in order to free yourself because you can see the world around you with a new perspective and find your own sense of yourself within that world. That's what literacy allows you to do. That's why like reading and writing is so magical, right? That's why it's like the amazing thing that we need to teach everybody to do. It's because it allows you to kind of free your mind, right? To liberate yourself. This was a really important idea in the boarding school systems, right? The idea was if you gained knowledge, if you gained liber uh, literacy, you would gain a kind of individual liberty as well. And what Zikala Shah is showing us at the end of the text is that that idea, that kind of foundation upon which Western education rests, this idea that we acquire literacy in order to liberate ourselves, this um, idea is actually quite faulty in the case of Zikala Shah because what does knowledge provide Zikala Shah? What does literacy provide to her at the end? not much good, right? Like, like, like not much. It doesn't provide her with a sense of identity. It doesn't provide her with freedom. It doesn't provide her with a closer relationship to her family. It doesn't provide her with a closer relationship to the settlers. All knowledge does for her is like um, further teach her about the depressing nature of her situation. Right, that's what knowledge does. And so it's a really profound kind of critique at the end of what we read in Zakalisha of the educational system in a settler context, which makes perfect sense, right? Because everything we read on Monday was about the educational system in a native context and about praising that system, right? So everything we've read on Wednesday and we read on Friday is actually a critique of the Western educational system, this idea that like learning to read and write is a kind of liberatory or emancipatory practice. Zakala Shah is suggesting, no, it's not. It's actually like driven me further and further into the pits of despair. Um, she's just resigned to what's happened to her as opposed to her mother who, according to Zakala Shah, still naively believes, right, that um, justice can come, that revenge can be had, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? This idea that like that we hold very dear, this idea that literacy provides a kind of um, possibility for freedom, that the acquisition of knowledge provides us with a kind of liberatory potential, that when we acquire knowledge, we become more fully ourselves, right? We differentiate ourselves from others. All of these ideas that we take as kind of like for granted premises of education, they're actually very Quite, quite Western, right? And for non-Western peoples, right? For indigenous peoples, sometimes when they're stuck into these educational models, and instead of kind of freeing themselves, they get stuck in them, right? And they can't kind of unshackle themselves from that idea. And like where it leaves them, to go back to Marissa's point, is it leaves them caught between, right? Not really feeling any particular sense of themselves. The contrast here between Zikala Shah and Apis is notable because Caroline, as you say in your post, like Apis finds religion in order to stabilize himself. 60 or 70 years later, Zikala Shah is basically like, there is no God, right? She, she doesn't have religion to do that stabilizing work. 
and we could kind of like speculate about the historical reasons for why that occurs, but, but that's kind of a, a broader conversation. Any questions about kind of how literacy is operating here and how it provides for Zakala Shah, um, not what it should? Okay, I want to I want to kind of uh, round out the conversation then with um, a couple of quotes from the text um, that kind of interface really nicely with what we've just been talking about, but are also kind of useful to think about on their own too. So I'm going to share um, a couple of quotes from the book. Yeah, people see that. And make it a little bit bigger. Cool. All right. So this is a um, the second quote. The one on the bottom is something that Kieran brought up uh, in your post, but and I want to talk about that one on its own. But I also want to talk about that one in context with something that happens um, at the beginning of what we read for for Wednesday. So I'm going to read both of these quotes, and then I just gonna the question that I'll ask you guys is how are they related to one another, and then kind of further the second quote. What does it say? What does it mean? Okay, so um, Zakala Shah says, after she's taken and she's on the train, she's about to leave uh, the plane to leave her family. She says, I sat perfectly still with my eyes downcast, daring only now and then to shoot long glances around me. Chancing to turn to the window at my side, I was quite breathless upon seeing one familiar object. It was the telegraph pole which strode by at short paces. She's on a train and she's moving, right? And we, we've all had this happen to us, like when we're in a moving vehicle, we see the telegraph pole just kind of like whipping by. That's what's happening to her. She says, very near my mother's dwelling along the edge of a road thickly bordered with wild sunflowers, some poles like these had been planted by white men. Planted here is a really interesting term, right? Especially when she contrasts those poles and their proximity with wild sunflowers, like sunflowers that because they are wild are explicitly not planted by men. That's an interesting contrast that she's drawing in that sentence, right? The idea that you would plant a telegraph pole and then contrast that with the wild sunflower. Often I had stopped on my way down the road to hold my ear against the pole and hearing its low moaning, I used to wonder what the pale face had done to hurt it. So it's a really notable quote here. What is she doing? She's putting her ear up against the telegraph pole and because it has a kind of electrical current coursing through the wires that are hold, being hold up, held up by these poles, she hears what she perceives as a low moaning. Right, she perceives this kind of electrical current that's going through these poles, this sign of modernity, this sign of the West, right, this sign of kind of technological advancement, this sign of civilization. She doesn't perceive it in like positive terms, she perceives it as pain, right, a low moaning, and that the whites have hurt these poles, right? So I want you to think about that quote in the context of the quote from the end of what we read for today. And this again kind of connects nicely with some of the things that we mentioned a little bit earlier. She says, for the white man's papers, I had given up my faith in the great spirit. For these same papers, I had forgotten the healing in trees and brooks. On account of my mother's simple view of life and, lack, and my lack of any, I gave her up also. That's a really notable sentence. 
On account of my mother's simple view of life and my lack of any, I gave her up also. You would expect Zikali Shah in that moment to say that on account of my mother's simple view of life and my complicated and nuanced view of life. But she doesn't say that. She actually says she has no view of life at all. Yikes. Right? You would expect her to say that, like, because she's become educated, she now sees the world more clearly, that she has a complicated and complex and nuanced view of life, and she perceives her mother's view of life as simplistic, right? She doesn't say that. She says that on account of her education, on account of the white man's papers, she has no view of life at all. Okay, so that's why you guys are all in school now, to just kind of get all views of life beaten out of you. Just leave as a depressing husk of yourself. That's college. <laughs> she says, I made no friends among the race of people I loathed. Loathe means hate. Like a slender tree, I had uprooted from my mother, nature, and God. I was shorn of my branches, which had waved in sympathy and love for home and friends. The natural coat of bark, which had protected my oversensitive nature, was scraped off to the very quick. So Kieran, could you just give us a little kind of outline of like what's happening in that second passage? Like what's it uh, yeah. telling us, yeah. So in my post, I don't remember exactly what I said, but she's comparing herself to a slender tree, obviously. And like slender trees are obviously easier to pull up from the ground and get rid of. And that's what's happening to her. She was uprooted from her mother, nature and God. So basically like the sense of her being and then she was shorn of her branches which had waved in the sympathy and shorn is like aggressively removed so that was like kind of pulled from her in the same way and then like the quick it's like kind of part of your nail where all the nerves and like the most sensitive part are underneath so she was scraped of that down to the quick so she was just a bare pole standing there Yes, right. And so that last point that you made is the kind of connection that I'm trying to draw back to that first quote, right? Because like what Zakala Shah is narrating in the quote on page 55 is essentially like her transformation from a young, stout sapling of a native girl into a bare moaning pole, stripped of everything, right? So yeah, cutting to the quick, right? Does anybody um, cut the, like, the nails of a, their dog? So you know that when you cut the nail of a dog, right, like you have to kind of line it up so that you don't hit what's called the quick, because if you hit the quick, then the dog starts bleeding. And like really incessantly, so like a lot, right? And so the idea, yeah, when you pull off the bark, right, when you cut that nail, but you go too far, you hit those nerve endings, you hit that kind of little blood vein, right? What happens is like you lose some of yourself, okay? So what's happening here is that Kali Shah is kind of giving us um, in a really descriptive way, a really interesting way, um, a nice way of thinking through what's happened to her personally over the course of her educational journey. Again, when we think of educational journey, like that's supposed to be a good thing. Like we're supposed to go to school and like learn things and meet people. She says she made no friends. Shit. It's like my college experience. She made no friends at all. Right. She just learned a bunch of stuff. Right. 
no friends at all, and she's come out the other side with no identity, right? It's important that she's describing herself and this transformation um, as a tree. Why do you think? She could have done anything. She could have talked about like a deer being flayed or something. She could have, like, she could have talked about any type of thing. Why a tree? Um, I think it might be because like trees grow over time. They start small and then they mature. And I think that's what she did. Like she started, like the book started out very young and how she was very innocent. And then as she got older, she kind of like, like wore, she wore away. Cool. Right. So there is a kind of natural connection to be drawn between the maturation and evolution of a person and the maturation and growth of a tree. And so like that connection makes, makes really good sense, right? So it's, it's natural for her to have kind of um, uh, equated herself with a tree, right? So she's growing and she's growing and she's growing. And then she gets to a point where like she should continue to mature and leaf out and flower and all of these things. And instead, all of her branches are shorn, all of the bark is ripped off of her, right? It's also notable to me that like when, you know, there's a couple of kind of small details that we can kind of think through with the use of the tree as the symbol for her kind of cultural degradation. You know, we can think about like stripping the bark off of somebody as kind of like, um, we can think about that in terms of skin color. We can think about that in terms of race. We can think about that in terms of ethnicity, right? When you scrape the bark off of a tree, right? You're getting down to that kind of quick, which is, uh, underneath the bark of a tree is quite quite white, right? In a different way than usually the bark of a tree is and stuff, unless we're talking about birches, I guess. Right, so that's one kind of like detail that we could get out of using the tree. Another detail that of course we can get out of using the tree is that like this portion of the text and the entirety of the text is about learning to read and write. And like in this time period in the late 19th century, like most for the, for the most part, learning to read and write happens on what type of material, right? There's no like iPads back in the day. Like learning to read and write happens on what type of material? Paper, right? And of course like the tree is in the late 19th century, the predominant material by which paper is made. And so like, it's interesting to me that she's thinking about herself as the very material that gets cut down and shorn and stripped and processed and turned into the material means by which we learn to become literate. Does that make sense? So that's just kind of a kind of a broader, maybe close reading or more analytical edge to what she's talking through is the idea that like, yeah, trees are being used in this um, time period to make paper and she's suggesting that basically all of the problems in her life are because of paper in one way or another, like because of the white man's paper. And so it's really notable and interesting that she is talking about herself as the material that you like pulp up, cut down, shore of branches, strip of bark and pulp up um, to turn into paper. That's basically what's happening to her. Two. Um, cool.
fun historical note, we think about trees as the source of paper, right? All the time, but that's actually not the case. Prior to like the 1850s and 1860s, anybody know what paper was predominantly made out of? It wasn't made out of trees. They didn't have the technology yet. Anybody know? It was made out of- Was it like stone or something? What's that? Stone. Didn't people um, use like stone? Oh yeah, they used it instead of using something like paper, right? But like the material that we made paper out of prior to making it out of trees, this has nothing to do with the class. It's just, it's just fun. The material that we used to make paper out of before we made it out of trees was old cotton and linen rags. And so there would be advertisements in the newspapers that like in big bold head would say ladies, because ladies like did all the domestic work, right? Ladies save your rags. It was kind of the uh, ladies would recycle old fabric and that's what paper would be made out of. So basically what they did is they recycled their like old disheveled, dirty underwear and they turned it into paper. That's what they did. And so when you picked up a book in like the 1830s, you had a very visceral sense that like you were like reading something that was made out of like your intimate clothing. I'm serious. There's talk about this. It's really fascinating. It has nothing to do with our class, but it's a nice little Friday note that when you're, uh, you know, at your quarantine party tonight, you can mention that to your friends. Okay. All right, have a good week, and um, I'll see some of you hopefully back here on Monday, but we'll start in with our uh, poetry too. All right, bye. I'll hang around if anybody has questions. Thanks. So I just had another thought that when you were asking about like the meaning of the tree, isn't there something called the tree of life? 